Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations from me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hello, amazing mamas. I'm I know I say this every time, but I'm really excited about our conversation today with Jared Brown. Um, I, I am just always blown away by the things that I learned that I know nothing about, and I clearly needed to know about them. And so today we're talking about alexithymia, and I officially have no idea what that is, but I need to. And so I'm really excited about jumping in this conversation. Jared, thank you for coming on and sharing with us again today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Okay. So alexithymia you say we all deal with it we all need to know about it but we're not really talking about it so what what is it 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 really goes to the heart of understanding emotions so we all have emotions and people with alexithymia struggle with making sense of emotions and naming their emotions so when someone gets mad who has true alexithymia they may not be able to come to you as mom or dad or even a school teacher, whoever, and say, I'm really angry right now, or I'm afraid, or I'm anxious. They, there's like an emotional block. So people with true alexithymia, a lot of times it can come out sideways as irritability. It can go inward into our body. It's been linked with more skin problems, headaches, digestive health issues, it is very common. People don't realize how common this is. In the general population, about 10% of people are dealing with this. In clinical populations, so what I mean like clinical could be medical disorders, mental health, even drug and alcohol treatment, half or more people in those settings have this. I've dealt with alexithymia at times. We all have. It, burnout has been linked to this. Parental burnout and alexithymia go hand in hand. Chronic sleep deprivation can cause this. So it's very common. Half of people with autism have this. 65% of people in drug and alcohol treatment programs have this. It's higher among kids with extensive trauma histories. So it's a really interesting, fascinating topic that people just don't know about. So when someone has alexithymia, Problems identifying emotions, so they may get emotions mixed up. Describing emotions are tricky. Expressing emotions are tricky. And this can lead to breakdowns in one-on-one communication. It can lead to breakdowns in groups. It's been associated with higher levels of depression, anxiety, and anger problems. And it can get in the way of people reading facial cues of other people. And it really plays a role, too, in perspective taking. So if someone has true alexithymia, they may look at someone else's face and get their facial expressions mixed up and misread cues. It's associated with so many things. It's a really fascinating topic. And it's likely the higher numbers of traumas someone has, the more diagnoses they have, the more problems they've had in past, there's probably a higher likelihood they're dealing with some level of traits associated with this, but it really is a component of just understanding emotions and emotional understanding. And if you want to understand emotions, 
understanding alexithymia is a big part of it, but so is understanding emotional and social intelligence and theory of mind, which we talked about previously, and how one uses language to communicate with other people. It's a really fascinating, interesting, confusing topic that's just not talked about in school programs, in my opinion, because I, I have a lot of degrees in a lot of areas like psychology, criminal justice, counseling. This is a topic that was not discussed. They didn't use the term alexithymia ever in my degree programs. Once I started learning about this topic, it opened my eyes to so many other things and it made a lot of sense when I was consulting on cases where there was such an emotional block with people. Why could that person never like articulate things and they always seem to get so aggressive or irritable or anxious? And as I started learning about this topic, there have been thousands of articles published on this, several books. It's associated with everything you can possibly imagine. It's been studied within the context of mental health, physical health, family factors. It's been studied within context of sex offenders, violent offenders, drug and alcohol, burnout. The list goes on and on and on. So that's a broad overview. I'll, I'll give you a lot more, but I wanted to park the brakes for a minute. Thank you, because I have about a million questions. Yeah. So starting with, so I'm a little confused on, is this something, it does not sound like this is something, a diagnosis that cannot be, like, it sounds more like depression or anxiety. Like I have seasons of depression. I have seasons where I'm really anxious. Does, does that kind of fall into this category? There's different, different subtypes of alexithymia in what you're talking about would probably be the more common type where it ebbs and flows. So like as a parent, if you're burnt out, you're just stressed, you're not sleeping well, you probably feel a little more emotionally numb and you're not able to put your, use your words to describe your emotions. But after maybe a good night's sleep and some of the stress goes down, you kind of get back to baseline. That's more normal, but there's an organic type of this too, where it might be more common in people with like head injuries frontal lobe impairment where it's more fixed it's going to be a little more tricky to get rid of it it's not a mental health diagnosis but it co-occurs with all kinds of mental health disorders and physical health issues as well and there are screening tools out there to to screen for this there's numerous screening tools actually people are surprised to learn that are pretty validated they're in the research but if you were to ask like a mental health professional or your medical doctor and use that term alexithymia, I would venture to say more times than not, they have no clue what you're talking about. But once you describe what it is, then, oh yeah, I see that all the time. Huh. I had several more questions and I cannot think of any of them. I'm so amazed by this. Yeah, it's a, it's a, just Google it. If you're, Audience is listening to this. You'll find a couple articles I've done online. I think I've done a, one or two other podcasts taking different angles on this. I've given a lot of talks on this to mental health professionals and criminal justice and forensic people. But it doesn't matter. Whatever field of study you're in, if you can learn about this, you're going to be in a better position because then you can better understand emotional states of other people, maybe why there's a block there. If you're a leader in your organization, 
or a manager or whatever you do. When I give talks on this, I always state, if you truly want to understand professional burnout, learn about this topic as well, because there's a lot of studies in the burnout literature that talk about alexithymia. If you're a drug and alcohol treatment professional listening to this, you would do quite well becoming a lexithymia informed because anywhere from 50 to 65% of the clients you serve, according to the research, have this. And again, half of people with autism have this. Probably half or more people with brain injuries have this. The question comes up, how many people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have this? Don't know because there's never been a study like that. Now in the FASD literature, you will see the term alexithymia mentioned, I think only two times I've found in articles where it's just briefly mentioned in like a review article, but there's never been an empirical based study where they use like statistics and like quantify it. Not that I'm aware of, but all the cases I consult on and all the caregivers I consulted with over the years, when you describe these symptoms, Difficulty naming, labeling, processing, making sense of emotions. Universally, everyone says, absolutely, I see that all the time in my kids or teenagers or adults who have FASD. Yeah. And I make up that that's just compiled with the trauma and the, like, all of that, too. Absolutely. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family, or the systems in your home. Or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable, and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. How do you, so this is a two-part question, because I feel like um, possibly the most people that are listening right now are either dealing with kiddos who struggle with this and, or they are burnt out and they're struggling with this. And so my first question, how do we kind of pull that out of our kids or help our kids learn more about how to kind of slow down and think through what they're feeling? Well, I think in my opinion, getting sleep under control is number one. There's a sleep issue. That just makes everything worse. This is just my opinion. People feel free to disagree, but I think number one to health is getting good sleep. That's the bedrock. If you can help people get better sleep, that's related to better emotional awareness and processing and slowing down in your brain thinks better. Easier said than done if we're talking about someone with a neurodevelopmental disorder or some sort of brain-based impairment, a little more tricky. Number two, in my opinion fix the gut. If the gut is off, that plays a huge role in emotions and mood and behavior. So if there's digestive health issues, 
constipation, bloating, diarrhea, all these things, irritable bowel syndrome, all kinds of things. Get that under control. Work with a healthcare provider. And again, we've talked about nutrition a little bit here and there, but maybe working with a nutritionist because at that cellular level, calming down the body, regulating the hormones only helps the brain run better. Just pretend it's a car. Are you slowing the car down or is it overheating? Are you putting really bad motor oil or gasoline into it? Are you putting high quality motor oil? Like same can be applied to high quality food. And those are things that I don't think we think about enough. We all know it in the back of our mind, but it plays a huge role. And I've been giving more talks like on energy drink consumption, sugar sweetened beverages and things like that, which are all too common, fast food, Western diet. Just think about when all that kind of food goes into the body, spikes your blood sugar, then crashes it. If you do that, you're going to have up and down mood swings. You're going to have more self-control deficits. You're probably going to be more impulsive. Being aware of not dysregulating the blood sugar levels. That's one of the best things we can do to support good mental health is to regulate our blood sugar levels. If we skip meals, if we're Going to the buffet, having six plates of food. I mean, we all know this is not good stuff, but these are all things that I'm throwing out in terms of cases I've consulted on where these have been issues. Recently published an article people can find online where some of my colleagues wrote a, a really, just a condensed article about blood sugar dysregulation. So if you type in blood sugar dysregulation and my name, you should be able to find it. It's geared toward criminal justice professionals, but anyone would benefit from looking at that. That's another avenue to take. So if we can get the body and brain calm, in my mind, then talk interventions, counseling, therapy, case management, whatever it is, whoever you're working with, a skills worker, in-home workers, that information can maybe get into the brain better. And that person can maybe make better sense of it. But if you're talking people with FASD, we know that they need repetition, they need consistency, predictability. It needs to be reinforced, not by just one person, but that entire network of people. And we need to be aware of not overwhelming the person with tons of words. So take interventions very slow and make sure it's developmentally appropriate. Because again, folks with FASD or some of these other neurodevelopmental disorders, maybe they're 10 years old on paper chronologically, Maybe they have a brain of a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven. So their emotional, developmental, and cognitive age don't align usually with how old their date of birth is. So those are a few basic things I would try starting out. Okay. Sleep and gut. That's my my thoughts. I mean, when, when we talk about with, with this, with alexithymia, obviously... It is linked to more burnout. It's linked with more trauma. So in theory, if you focus on stress management skills, working with someone who truly understands trauma and neurodevelopmental disorders and attachment, those can all be very helpful as well. And again, individualize what we're doing because every child, every teenager, every adult has different challenges but also different strengths. So we want to capitalize on their strengths through strengths-based approaches, but we also need to understand their limitations and weaknesses, but not like throw it right in their face where they start feeling shamed and they feel like they're defective. 
we have to understand how their brain works and how their body works. So for some of these kids, again, maybe they benefit from getting a neuropsychological test to find out how their brain is processing, staying in contact with healthcare providers, ruling out any medical issues. There's a lot of moving parts when we're talking about complex human behavior. We got to try to rule out all of these co-occurring secondary issues too, I think is very helpful. So interesting because I think emotion and I think, okay, it's going to be like a counseling tactic of like, okay, pick which feeling you're feeling on the feelings wheel, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but you haven't said anything like that. Thank (laughs) you for saying that. So if you, if you have someone with alexithymia, go to a counselor or therapist, the counselor and therapist more times than not will probably have no clue what that term even means because they haven't been trained in it. But if you explain it to them, they understand. Absolutely. But if the therapist asks someone who has true alexithymia to show me on this feeling wheel how you're feeling, it's not going to happen. There's that emotional block. If that therapist asks that client, tell me why you feel this way. How and why questions can be so tricky for someone with alexithymia. So you have to be concrete. You have to be specific. You have to teach the client, maybe these body sensations they're feeling is really indicative of your emotions. So again, people with alexithymia, if you ask them, how are you feeling today? They may say good, but you can see on their face they're in distress. They may then report, my chest is hurting. My heart's racing. My skin feels warm. My back hurts. These are all potential exothymia symptoms manifesting themselves in physical sensations. So helping them connect the dots more can be very helpful. Music therapy, art therapy, play therapy, animal therapy, those are all really good too. You could try to have. Movement-based interventions can be helpful as well. But sitting talk therapy with someone that has true exothymia, it can be pretty tricky to be honest with you. Okay. Well, I think when you're talking, I'm like, this sounds like a good place to insert. Um, when we were going through a, a really rough season with Andrew. And so we needed to get some training on like different holds and things like that to figure out how to safely keep him safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we went and did was the Soma training. Is that right? I might be butchering that no, name. No, don't know that one. Well, okay. Um, but it was a lot of like de-escalation tactics and stuff. And so it's like, oh, I see your hands are clipped. You look like you might be feeling angry. Are you angry right now? Just like basically verbalizing what you see in them and then putting a feeling to that and then asking them that question more specifically. Is that, would that be a helpful way to go about this? I would need to know more about that program, but really assessing for this, I think is good. And the first thing is to know what it looks like and know the terms. So the people around the person, that's a starting point. Knowing their triggers then, because the triggers may be very subtle Mm -hmm. and it it may manifest itself in really unusual ways. So get to know the person on an individual level. Know that some of these people, depending on how their brain's functioning too, sometimes it can start out as irritability. That's a great area to focus on. And then irritability climbs to rage or anger. So it could progress like this. Or, and sometimes it goes straight up. It's like zero to 60 in a second. 
when they're in that moment, in my opinion, that's the time your the brain isn't going to take in information. It's when they're calm again after the fact, do the intervention. But in the moment when they're escalating, obviously keeping them safe and yourself safe. A couple of cases I've consulted on where I swear, and I don't know a certainty, but I swear alexithymia was a factor in the person running away from the group home, elopement behavior, and the staff members just didn't know how to de-escalate. And they were just constantly bombarding the person with words and commands and multi-step instructions. They didn't understand information processing weaknesses, working memory deficits, or sensory processing. So those are things I would, you probably need to know too, if we're talking about this through a de-escalation lens. Interventions that are talked about in the alexithymia literature, and this isn't necessarily specific to any particular disorder, but alexithymia in general, DBT, I don't know if you've heard of that. A lot of times you hear like DBT for borderline personality disorder, dialectical behavioral therapy, but it's actually used for so many things. There's a couple studies that show that DBT may actually help combat alexithymia. So that might be something to consider with a qualified person. Being aware of teaching that person very concrete emotional regulation skills and emotional recognition training has been talked about as well. Teaching them healthy forms of stress management has been talked about too. And again, you probably don't want to teach this when they're in the heat of the moment because their brain is on overdrive and fight or flight. Family education is absolutely stressed. Families have to understand this. Depending on the individual's level of functioning, it does talk about the use of psychoeducation. We're educating the client that they have this or this is what it looks like has actually been shown to help reduce these symptoms. Managing fatigue has been shown to be helpful. So fatigue management, which kind of goes hand in hand, I think, with sleep improvement strategies. Couple studies have found that utilizing mindfulness-based approaches or expressive writing or journaling interventions may actually be helpful as well. And also teaching self-compassion That's been shown to maybe reduce this a little bit as well. But again, there's so many studies out there. But those are a few of the interventions that have been talked about specifically in the the alexithymia literature. And this can be done face-to-face. There's some studies that have shown that this can be done through telehealth, self-help books, smartphone-based interventions. There's all kinds of ways to, to teach these skills. And also helping the client improve their interoceptive awareness. And that would be another topic for your audience to really be aware of. Interoception, like people just being more aware of like when they're hungry, when, when they're tired, when they're full, being more aware of what's going on physiologically with them. Why I'm short of breath right now. Maybe that's indicative that I'm anxious or nervous or why I just feel fatigued, just having more self-awareness of your own body symptoms can be very, very helpful. And I'm not advocating for folks to go out and do this, talk to your healthcare provider, but ways we can improve that as well. Mindfulness, yoga has been shown to be very helpful for this. Deep breathing exercises, engaging in the creative arts, just becoming more attuned with your body 
and your mind and your senses and learning how to put your thoughts on paper can be very helpful. Again, getting animals involved. Maybe it's getting involved in gardening or group drumming interventions. These are all things that have been shown to potentially improve our own interoceptive awareness. You said group drumming? Group drumming. Please tell me more. So in group, there's actually a couple certifications online I'm aware of, but group drumming, people Google that. There's actually several studies that show that's very, very helpful. It's just basically getting together with a group of people. Maybe there's a facilitator and you're drumming. And there's some amazing research findings on that. It's been shown to lower inflammation. It's been shown to help improve attention. It's been shown to help feel a sense of belonging because you're all in a circle. Maybe you're talking about your emotions more, your coordination. It's really fat. It's common sense stuff, but it's been used for thousands of years, of course, with certain cultures. But group drumming interventions or therapeutic drumming is what you would want to search online for. You can find articles. You can find training programs on that, too. No, you're surprised. Um. That's amazing. I feel like there's a really good thing to go look up. and. It's a lot of alternative things out there. And I hate to use the word alternative because some of these things are have been around for thousands of years. I mean, just being out in nature, look at the green space literature, just it's common sense, just being out in nature more and getting out the gadgets and moving around and taking in the world and looking at flowers and plants and gardening and, just using your hands more. I feel like and done forever. So our society has lost that, I think, over the years, and COVID has not helped. And we're all glued to the screens now. We're sitting inside more, and kids are playing less outside. And it's not good, in my opinion. And the research is pretty clear too. It's it's not it's not helpful for development. Okay. I'm I'm sorry, my brain is going. And I'm thinking of all the things in my children, uh, which is not helpful to the podcast, but it's very helpful to me. So I'm I'm grateful. Um, this is kind of a very, how would you explain, I'm thinking the psychoeducation piece, because I always find that super helpful to just have those conversations. But are we still having those conversations, even if I'm like, I don't know if they're going to understand anything I'm saying. I would probably wait until the person is mature enough or cognitively capable to take some of this in okay. and talk to your healthcare provider, qualified mental health or neurologist and get some advice. Like when would it be appropriate to this start talking about this? But at the very, at, we can't go wrong as caregivers, professionals, school teachers, counselors, therapists, medical doctors, to understand as much as possible about this because we'll be in a better position to take care of our own selves and we'll have more empathy for clients we work with or raising kids that present with some of these symptoms. And as a caregiver, if you're aware of this now and you notice those patterns, maybe it pauses you for a few seconds to take a step back and realize maybe my child is reacting this way, not out of revenge or malicious behavior but it could it be rooted in something with their disorder or deficit that's causing that emotional block 
and take a step back. And the more patient you are and the more kind and you keep your voice toned down, to me, that seems like a good thing for everyone. Keeps the blood pressure a little lower. It's good for attachment. It's trauma-informed, in my opinion. If you can be kind, calm, patient, curious, understanding, regardless of the child's age. And if you treat your coworkers that way and your spouse that way, or your friends, better outcomes can probably happen. I mean, all around. Yes, I think I so. That. Okay. Is there anything else that you need to tell us that we need to know about this? We're going to be Googling yeah. your name and blood sugar. Blood sugar dysregulation. I wrote an article for mental health folks on alexithymia. And I think I wrote it. I, I know I did one more article, maybe for criminal justice, but just Google as you can find them. And they're very practical. It does not matter your level of education or what field you're in. Lots of bullet point takeaways, suggestions, tips, strategies. Those would be some good starting points as well. And if you really want to take your knowledge to a, a, a deeper level, go to Google Scholar and type in alexithymia. I mean, you will find hundreds, if not thousands of articles on so many topics related to alexithymia. I didn't know about this. Google Scholar? Yeah, that's where you can find more scholarly articles or abstracts to scholarly articles. You won't be able to find them all, but that's a great resource that I use when I prepare for trainings, talks, when I teach classes. I mean, just reading the literature. I mean, who knew about that? Clearly you did. There, I mean, it's it's free. It's out there. Yeah, you can search articles by year publication. You can search case law on there. It's a great resource. I think all people would benefit. And I love reading journal articles. I mean, I'm a professor and a nerd, but if you can understand the literature on whatever topic that you're talking about, you're in a much better position to advocate for your child, for yourself. You go into the doctor, you might know a little bit more about what the doctor's saying or those kind of things can be very helpful. More than the doctor? That was fine. Some, some topics, yes. Yeah, Sometimes like FASD, <laughs> not a lot of medical doctors understand FASD and that is talked about in the literature too. That Medical doctors just don't get a lot of training in med school and FASD. They get a lot more on autism. So a lot of times I hear from caregivers, the caregivers are the ones going in there, maybe providing the education to the, the healthcare providers. So that is typically when I know a lot more than the doctors. Yeah, yeah. it can be frustrating. <laughs> um, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back and share my email with folks too. I'm always welcome to respond to folks if they have questions. Okay. Thank you, Jared. You're welcome, my friend. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.